and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 90. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the second half of part one of the Peacekeeper Wars. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of what we'll be discussing. The episode starts where we left off, with everyone on our nest. The Scarens appear, and our crew is taken captive. As Stalik and Akna play cat and mouse with everyone's life, John tries to convince them that he doesn't have wormhole weapons. Meanwhile, Jossie shows back up and manages to rescue jo- Dargo and Chiana just before they're about to die in space. So part two starts with everyone on our desk and the Eidolons, and we learn about who they are and what they can do and how things used to be better when they were around. And of course, everything goes sideways when the Scarens crash the party, and it just becomes this huge mess of disaster after disaster. Yeah, this episode was very action-y, and it was interesting to me how much time we spent with the Scarens. Because in this 45 minutes, I think we probably spent 30 minutes just with the Scarens, which was interesting because I kind of like Akna, but like this this part that we're going to be discussing also has both Akna and Greza acting very Lady Macbethian, which was kind of like, <laughs> all right, interesting, you know. They are the powers behind their respective thrones, you know, at the moment. And yeah, and that's the other thing we see. We see this huge power shift going on of who is really in control and of course it just makes all the situations more difficult because you know our crew has their plan they're going to get the eidolons they're going to make peace and it's all going to be great and of course it doesn't happen that way because farscape and we're only in the second hour of this thing mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have a lot of major changes happening amongst the respective parties too because we have stalik and the is the scaran empire emperor with Akna messing up his plans, and we have uh, Grand Chancellor Merrick, who's the leader of the Peacekeepers, and we have Greza standing behind him messing up his plans. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just a lot going on. So let's jump right into it. The transport pod arrives on our desk, and we have John wandering through the woods, getting lost, and you see this like mysterious creature tracking him, who it turns out is Jewel, who actually shoots him with like an arrow thing he just barely dodges. And she takes him prisoner, or tackles him to the ground, rather, and has a knife to his throat before she recognizes him. And then to make things super awkward, she then jumps him. <laughs> yeah. that This one was, like, a little, like, okay. Because last time we saw Jewel, she was, like, super into Dargo. And now she's I like, know. I know you were in love with me, John. And I'm like, since when? <laughs> so here's my question. Is that Jewel just being horny and alone after a year with these basically out-of-place uh, Eidolons? And it's just because she finds John first? Or is that like the show writers being like, John is Jim Kirk, you know, is like doing the whole Captain uh, Captain Kirk thing, which is, as we know, entirely inaccurate, except when it's not. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would actually go for the latter, where because it kind of seems like she's gone a little bit. I don't want to be like off the deep end, but and I don't want to use like there's like an offensive term for what it looks like she's done which I don't want to use either. But at the same time, I'm like, she literally is now wearing like animal skins and is like using bows and arrows and like her hair is like a complete mess. And I'm kind of like, who is this character that used to be kind of a stuck up princess? Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so it feels like the writers, because you know they're reintroducing Jules as as a character that we haven't seen in a very long time. That was my kind of impression mm-hmm. too, which makes it kind of sad because I really like Jules and all her stuck upness. Well, and it's so funny because the first quote I want to play right now actually has Jules acting like Jules. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it feels like clearly they remember who she was, but I was like, why did we have that? Like, this was very, <laughs> if, if it had been like a high tech trap or something like that, then I would have been like, okay, maybe. But I think yeah. that this is hilarious. Well, she is like kissing on John and then Aaron shows up and Rigel's like, they're having my baby, which I think is one hilarious that now Rigel is now a part of this little family and he's fully on board <laughs> with, with the ownership there. So I think they set it up for that joke, mm-hmm. honestly. But yeah, um, so they go to the temple where it's where they have all the idolons doing their singing prayer thing, and uh, they lay their case out for for Bacall getting trained, and then the head honcho says we must meditate on this, and this is the part that comes after that. Hyrak, please. You know me. I know these travelers. They are honorable. Why do you send them away? I do not. I simply require time to examine the issue. But with, with great respect, what is there to examine? Vikal is an Eidolon like you. We have awakened from 12,000 cycles of sleep. What pertinence can we have to your galaxy now? But the war, the deaths, the slaughter... Peacekeepers, do your duty! The, the horror! May I speak? The peacekeeper shall be heard. We apologize for invading your sanctuary, and we understand you have reason for caution. But what could be more pertinent in this time, or any, than the ability to inspire peace? Even if he's idle, how can this one supplicant help that cause? You are few here, and Bacar's people are many. With your instruction, they could become a great force for peace. Though the peacekeeper provides sound counsel, I still sustain reservations that must be meditated upon. Peacekeepers, clear the temple. Can you believe this? Somebody wants us to be peacekeepers. Are you assassin? No. I'm just the guy without a brain. The lion here would like some courage. Tin Man, he needs a heart. Toto here just wants an easy berth, and Dorothy here, she is just looking for a way home. Now, we're not gonna be here tomorrow, so I suggest you take a long, hard look at our broomstick. He is your heir. An idol. So there's a lot going on in that quote. We hear a lot about the Eidolons themselves uh, from their hierarch, whose name is Yandalao. Mm-hmm. And basically, he wants time to consider. He's been thrown out of time for 12,000 years. They've just rejoined the world. They only have Jewel as their guide, which, yes, she's smart and brilliant and everything, but that's still one person trying to catch them up to speed. Mm-hmm. They've got this you know, this displacement going on and they're trying to catch up. And he's like, I gotta think about it, which is not an unreasonable reaction when it really comes down to it. Mm-hmm. 
And especially because I think his position is kind of like, well, what do we have to offer now? Like we, we offered peace and the universe repaid us by killing off us and, or trying to kill us off and killing off all of our, you know, all of the others of our species. So I kind of get where he's coming from of like, maybe they just want to hang out for a while. Maybe they don't want (laughs) to get involved in the international politics of this for a while. Exactly. The other thing I want to point out, and this is something that keeps coming up, is this is literally, I think, the first time on the show that the word peacekeepers has been said with such, like, the way he says it, it feels like he actually thinks that they are peacekeepers. You know, Mm -hmm. he respects them. Like, when he's listening to Aaron's counsel, he doesn't say, oh, her counsel or, like, whatever. He says, the peacekeeper's counsel is sound. You know, he respects the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you have John even acknowledging that with like kind of angrily saying right before his he accidentally uh, has his weapon go off, you know, like someone wants us to be peacekeepers. How rare is that, basically? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And Aaron has this kind of strange look on her face. Like she thinks it's a little weird, too. I don't know. It's just something really compelling about that. Yeah. And I think it's all in the way the actor is saying the word, too. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is I don't I don't know I it's I can't really explain it, but when you listen to it and when you see it, it just is so different from any other way that anyone on the show has ever said peacekeepers before. Yeah, he clearly has a different expectation of what they should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's saying it with command. He's telling them, "Hey, peacekeepers, you know, do your duty." Because basically, Stark has come up and is clutching at his feet because Stark is so desperate for him to help out with the peace talks. Or mm-hmm. making peace between the Scarens and the peacekeepers, so so yeah, he's like he sees two people who he th- has an expectation of their role in, and then he calls them on it. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I want to to bring up with this quote is John here using the Wizard of Oz analogy when mm-hmm. he goes around kind of angrily about you know I'm just the man without a brain. You know, Stark needs courage. Scorpius needs a heart. Toto just wants to have his baby, and. And then he has has, has uh, Bacall as Dorothy, which I think is really interesting because John has used Wizard of Oz as an analogy before, where he has been Dorothy. He has been Dorothy mm-hmm. Gale, lost in Kansas, or lost from lost in um, lost in Oz, trying to get back to Kansas. I mean, that's the whole analogy that you have with unrealized realities in Kansas, the episode itself. Mm-hmm. And here, he is no longer the one lost. And I just find that really interesting that here in the Peacekeeper Wars, he is where he should be in a way. Mm-hmm. Whereas he's trying to help someone else who is lost find their place. That's a really good point. Yeah, I I liked that as well. And I also thought it was interesting that he said, we're not going to be here tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah. Because I think he really still is focused on this idea of we're going to, you know, start the peace process and then we're peacing out. Yeah, he and Aaron are not going to be involved. Yeah, we're staying, you know, this is no longer our fight. And... I think that that's really interesting because that means that he expects Bacall to kind of pick up. Like, he's like, we're just taking you here. You know, mm-hmm. we are the tornado that is taking you here. And then after this, we're kind of, the, you know, it kind of feels like their plan is to wash their hands of the whole situation. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And then it's kind of like this passing of the torch to Bacall, who's like now the one that the galaxy's hopes of peace are now laid upon. And hey, you need to mm-hmm. step up and save everybody. Yeah. So the Hierarch agrees after this kind of random speech, <laughs> he agrees to take Bacall because John really forces him to look at Bacall and he does see the similarities. And 
the crew is kind of hanging around, I think because they're planning on taking Bacall back to his people once he figures out, I guess they think it's going to be a really short process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, Bacall is going through like a ceremony of initiation of some sort. And we have mm-hmm. John and Aaron hanging out outside. And I love this next little conversation between the two of them. So we're just going to play it. It's going to work. With training, Bacall and his kind should be able to stop the war. No wormholes. Exactly what I was thinking, John Crichton. Can we go back to Moya now? I'm starving. In a microt. Go and get Stark. Is it just me, or is he getting bigger? It's a geometric pregnancy. Please tell me that means we're going to have a mathematician. Soldier, more likely. But we will be having it sooner than you think. How sooner? Well, with genetic modifications put into someone born into a battle unit like myself, essentially we're going to be parents in a matter of solar days. Days. <clears throat> we, we don't have a name. Already picked one. What? what? Excuse me? Do you not like it? Boy or girl? Either. It works for both. You just made a joke. Soldiers don't have a sense of humor, John. You better have my dinner ready when I get back on that ship now. I just love Aaron trolling John. It makes my heart happy. <laughs> <laughs> I am super excited by, again, the Rigel pregnancy thing. I think it's my favorite (laughs) in the whole world. But also, it brings up so many questions for me. (laughs) Like this whole thing where I'm like, where is he actually keeping the baby? And then I just headcanoned it that I was like, I bet that maybe they have like vestigial like um, uteruses or something like that, even though technically (laughs) they are amphibians, so they lay eggs. So I'm like, (laughs) okay, whatever. He has like a vestigial (laughs) uterus. And then I'm also like... That would be really physically hard to have a child really quickly. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Okay, I will. I'll give you the head, the head, head cannon. But I think the baby's in his stomach, and I don't know how the baby is surviving unless the baby came with a little amniotic pouch that is still intact after this whole process. But it's just like <laughs> hanging out in Rigel's stomach or one of his stomachs. I don't know. But yeah. But that's really, I think one of the funny things about this conversation too is when Rigel comes over and he's like, I'm starving. And Aaron's like, well, go back soon. Go get Stark. And it's very much like a parent telling the child, like, just be patient. Go get your brother. <laughs> <laughs> when she did it earlier too, when Rigel was talking about maybe going back to Hyneria and she was like, you're not going anywhere. Lay down. Rest. And he's like, you're going to be a great mom. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just love the little banter between Aaron and John. It's just, you know, hey, we need a we need a baby day. We're going to have a kid in a couple of days. And John just kind of like, you can see the shock on his face, but then mm-hmm. he just kind of rolls with it. And I just kind of love that he just kind of rolls with it and goes with it. And, you know, and then he's joking back as the two of them are are figuring this whole partnership thing, parenthood Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, for certain. So most of the crew goes back up on the ship, Mm -hmm. and Sokozu has this interesting moment with Eren, which, like I've said, I love her outfit, but like, (laughs) I don't want to do any spoilers, but her character during the miniseries is definitely a little different than I think what we were used to on the show. 
And maybe that's possibly because we didn't have a ton of time to develop her on the show. So maybe this is where they were always intending on going with her. But at the same time, mm. <laughs> so Aaron is getting helping pilot get rid of the harpoon. So now the harpoon damage is done. And then Sokozu walks on to command. Back so soon. Why don't you tell Scorpius that continuously asking me will not change my opinion. Peace is still a better option than trying to build a wormhole weapon. Not spoken like a true soldier. Depends on your definition. With all due respect, Aaron, Crichton is your inferior, so why would you bear his child? You should leave, Sakosu. And I mean off this ship. I did not mean to offend. When I first met Scorpius, I naturally assumed I was his superior. I have since learned there is a reservoir to his abilities that continually overshadows my own. Same with Crichton. You view Crichton as your superior? No, as my equal. Sokozu, perhaps your under and overestimations of yourself are meaningless. Perhaps you're just meant to be together. I just like Aaron being like, maybe you were meant to be together. Stop overthinking this. You like this guy. Just be with him, even though it's Scorpius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite bit, too. I wish I love what she's like, maybe you over and underestimating your abilities is like pointless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what you think about Sokozu here, because... You know, she has been with Scorpius for two months now, basically one-on-one -on -one with him. And, mm -hmm. like, her own analysis of, like, being someone's inferior, being someone's uh, superior. I mean, that's, that's very clearly how she thinks about the social structures of people, right? And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a Kalish thing or if it's just a Sokozu thing or a survival thing or whatever. Like, Because she's always been like, I am superior to all you guys. And she mm -hmm. looks down on the crew of Moya and everything. And she did find something in Scorpius to admire about him. And I can see that with two months of basically living together in whatever, when an environment where Scorpius does have power, does have control, you know, does have weird, possibly wacky threesomes with Bracca. I don't know. I hope so, because I like Bracca. <laughs> but okay, me making jokes aside, like I can kind of see how she would have this evolved uh, vision of Scorpius and who they are to each other. Mm -hmm. So I don't know yeah. how in or out of character it is. And also... You know, as we've said, if it's it's on screen, it's canon. So it is her character. So I don't know. It's yeah, I think it's not not this so much as like what happens later in the series thing. And we'll get there. We'll get there, guys. Because this conversation actually feels super Sokozu 1.0. Like this mm -hmm. feels like something she would say way back when we first met her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's her way of dealing with her own relationship with Scorpius. Because she really started getting with Scorpius because she wanted an ally on Moya and she saw everybody else as inferior and he was kind of her best bet. But now she's kind of like really stuck with him and she seems to be enjoying it. But there is that kind of question in her heart still, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could also be like the insecurity of what does he see in me? Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's like she thought she was so much better or then maybe his equal. And now maybe she's like, oh, 
I've seen this other side to him where he is very powerful and I feel like I am out of my depth with him, but yet he still likes me. Mm-hmm. So I'm that's kind of a little bit of a read I took from it just because she's like, so Aaron, why are you with John? Like, yeah. You're, you have this mismatch of power between you two. Why are you as someone who is superior to John with this inferior person? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like her asking. She can't ask Scorpius that question, but she can ask someone else who's quote unquote dominant why they are staying with someone who is less, less than they quote unquote less than they are. Yeah, for certain. So at this point, Emperor Stalik shows up with his very fast, brand new ship. It's that such was- a cool ship. I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but it's basically the best of the best of everything. And <laughs> everyone freaks out because they're like, uh oh. And down on the planet, John and Scorpius have had another conversation where where Scorpius is like, the only lasting peace is the one that comes from an act of conflict. You can't have a lasting peace without with with the uh, without actually somebody winning the war. And John doesn't buy it. And then Scarin show up, and everyone freaks out, understandably. Mm-hmm. So John goes to the Eidolons. He tries to get them all to come with him, but. Nobody is going to come with him. And he's like, look, the Scarens are really bad news. You need to come with us. And in the end, only the hierarch is going to go with them because Bacall is too young. He just started his training. He doesn't know anything. (laughs) And so the hierarch is going to come with them. So he says goodbye to Jewel. And he says something really sweet, which is, you know, you always make the best mistakes. Yeah. It feels like very a very Moya thing to say, like a very crew of Moya thing to say, because, <laughs> yeah, they, you know, if she's going to make mistakes, at least they're going to be good ones, you know, mm-hmm. or for the right reasons. Right. Because mm-hmm. he wants Jewel to come with them because he's afraid of what the Scarens are going to do. And she said, my place is here. And because mm-hmm. she has made this decision to dedicate herself to helping the Eidolons. And it's a really noble and good cause that she has aligned herself with. And that's why I think he says, you know, making the best mistakes is like he understands that this is a calling for her. Mm-hmm. So they are all back up on the ship now, except for the Eidolons. And Stalik nukes them from space, completely destroys them. Really, really sad. Because you have Jewel trying to make contact with the Scarens and say, hey, we're peaceful. And so everyone can watch their transmission. And then you just see their transmission cut out. And the faces, oh my god, Aaron's face and John's face. And then Stark is screaming because he can feel it all. And mm-hmm. it's just it's just wretched. And Moya didn't starburst because, you know, they could have taken damage from got shot before they could do it, which is what happens when they finally do try to starburst and they have to surrender to the Scarens. Yeah. And Stalik essentially says, if there's any living creature left on your ship, we are going to destroy Moya. And so everybody, including Rigel, gets on this pod. They go to the Scarens. Except for Dargo and Shiana, who go on Dargo's ship, which is cloaked. Mm-hmm. So they're going to try and be like the ace in the hole out in space. Mm-hmm. So they get in the room, and then somebody has told Akna that Rigel is pregnant with Aaron and John's baby. <laughs> and Scorpius immediately calls out Grunchlick. Which... As being the traitor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And real quick, before we get too deep into this, I just want to point out the awesome scene of Aaron having to unload extra weapons from <laughs> her person because she's doing that. Oh, I must have forgotten to take out this one and this one and this one and this one. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so oh, classic, Erin. She's like, I'm not going into the scarens without weapons. I'm not stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Rigel also has a really good moment because Akna is like, oh, I was always under the impression that you were a male. And he's like, oh, I've got like a really bad tumor. I'm going to die. And she's like, hmm. <laughs> But yeah, so the Scarens know what the situation is with all of them. They separate Rigel and Stalik says, you're going to do what I want. You're going to give me the wormhole weapons. And otherwise, I'm going to let Akna torture Rigel. Also, at one point, is arguing with Scorpius and pulls out and tears off his, uh, his whatchamacallit, Cooling heating rods. thing. Cooling rods. So that's now, his head's now kind of broken. And John and Aaron are like, oh, crap. That's our kid. And so mm-hmm. John goes to make a deal with Stalik, even though he doesn't have weapons to give them because he doesn't have the capability. He's got to prove that and show them. And so that's the the second half of this is kind of going into into them being prisoners. And John convinces Stalik to go down a wormhole with him. Mm-hmm. So John takes Stalik in his module, which is kind of the super funny moment of like the oversized Stalik <laughs> scrunched up into the little tiny human sized module. And they go to meet Einstein. Yep. While he and uh, Stalik are talking, we have this kind of flash to the conversation that's happening in John's head between him and Harvey. And Harvey's all like, look, you have this opportunity to murder the emperor of the Scarens. Mm-hmm. Crash him into the wormhole wall. And their little intern scenario is like a crash uh, test dummy crash car is what's happening in his head. And, you know, John's like, no, Akna's worse. Not going to solve any of our problems. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to commit suicide because my kid needs a father. And I think that's something that's really gets to the core of John's character. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we saw that in Look at the Princess trilogy when he's like, he was willing to become a statue to be the father of the child that he mm-hmm. had, that whose DNA he had contributed to. He doesn't want a kid to grow up with a dead parent. And I think that's, it says a lot about who John is and how he thinks of family and everything. And you could argue on the one hand that, yes, it's kind of selfish that he's, you know, he wants to take care of his family first. But on the other hand, it's like so fundamental to what human people are like with, with families and what they mean to us, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He gets them to Einstein, and we're going to play that one uh, because that's a, always a fun time with Einstein. Check it out. I'm Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You have violated our trust. He has my family. Unimportant to the greater agenda. They are my greater agenda. Why have you brought him here? Who is this creature? You can call him Einstein. I suggest you do it nicely. Stalik. Stalik. He can wrap time round his little finger. The hoodoo voodoo is not gonna work. Einstein, do you possess the knowledge of wormholes? Yes. Can these wormholes be made into weapons? Yes. Then you will give me that power! No. Hang on! I can find a wormhole and fly down one, right? With the rudimentary knowledge we have given you. Can I make a weapon? You cannot. Why not? Because no one should have that power. Exactly. Listen up.
This is your universe. This is your universe on wormholes. You mess with the natural order, you destroy multiple timelines. I will have that power! Humbling, ain't it? Returning here was wrong. I have to protect the people I love. And you owe me for putting that crap in my head. It may soon be prudent to remove it. Amen. I want to be blonde again. You truly cannot create wormhole weapons. We should get back before Rigel damages your wife. So one of the things that you don't hear but you visually see is you see Stalik trying to attack Einstein and Einstein brushing it off. And you see um, him arguing and then you see him get frozen in, in time and just like a block. Like he can't move. He doesn't have any, any kind of control or anything. He's just frozen. And I think it really is a good reminder of just how powerful Einstein is and how how important wormhole security is mm -hmm. to Einstein and his people. And they, they have reluctantly enlisted John to help them because they don't have the ancients anymore, the ones who are the corporeal in our realm. And I don't know, I just really like the rapport that you see also between, between John and Einstein of being like, hey, you know, I know you taught me what I know, and you got to tell this guy that I can't do these wormhole weapons. And, mm -hmm. and he, then he agrees with Einstein. You know, they were very confrontational before, but now there's this understanding of, like, no one should have that power. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that John chose to come to Einstein because I think this is the one person that Salik would believe. Mm -hmm. Like, earlier in the episode, when John presented Salik with the opportunity to come with him and go down a wormhole and find the person that had the knowledge of wormholes... Stalik at first kind of was like a little bit didn't believe him and Akna was like going to go with him. And, and then by he, a little bit, they tried to like do the, the the heat thing to get him to tell the truth. Yeah. And it was interesting because Stalik was like, oh, you can resist my heat probe. And John was like, no, I am telling you the truth. I'm one of the few people that's ever going to tell you the truth. And I think that maybe that is also why Stalik kind of so easily believes this. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because mm -hmm. John did tell him the truth earlier, you know? Yeah. We also have a little bit of Einstein saying, hey, maybe it's about time to remove all this wormhole knowledge from your head if this is what's coming about it. And of course, John is like, please, please do that. I really don't want it in my head anymore. Mm -hmm. Which on the one hand, I'm like, okay, you're giving away your one defensive capability. That would be like Moya giving up Starburst. But on the other hand, I think John also sees it as like, him giving up the reason anybody would want to brain torture him again. Because the next yeah. time somebody has brain torture him, they would be like, oh, he doesn't have the knowledge, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. if Scorpius had, when he was digging through John's brain, dug through it, found nothing, then this whole thing would have been avoided if Scorpius hadn't found that kernel of wormhole knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, think of the alternate Farscape we would have gotten in that case. <laughs> probably not quite as interesting, honestly. <laughs> yeah, probably would have been more like Star Trek or something. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back with the Scarens, Aaron is really curious because the hierarchy at this point has referenced peacekeepers kind of nicely multiple times. Mm -hmm. And she wants to know the backstory. Is that progress? A great deal. 
I will soon be able to influence their passions. Excellent. In the temple, you said peacekeepers do your duty. What did you mean? I had forgotten that you had forgotten. At the dawn of our period of usefulness, 27,000 cycles ago, we developed need of a guard, a race no one had quarrel with, a force to ensure harmony prevailed once negotiations had finished. Peacekeepers. Apparently your forebears attempted to carry on once we vanished. However, lacking our mediation abilities, they kept peace the only way they could, at the muzzle of a weapon. And that's why they're hated. Oh, it wasn't such at the beginning. We took great care to choose a species no one had met before. We found your kind primitive and barely clothed, far removed on the galaxy's outer spiral. Having brought some of you back, your evolution was accelerated with generous alterations until you became our trusted acolytes. So, big revelation. <laughs> peacekeepers are descended from humans. <laughs> Which, We're all shocked. <laughs> yeah, totally, completely shocked that the species that looks identical is related to each other. <laughs> I love this revelation about the origins of peacekeepers because I think it really gets at the heart of what Erin has been wanting for four years, you know? Or, I mean, mm -hmm. what she's been wanting her whole life, really, but what we've seen her explicitly wanting during this whole series. And also I love this idea of the Eidolons knowing that their peace isn't going to be maintained without somebody maintaining it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You actually need somebody who is neutral. And in this case, an unknown species who can basically come in and say, Hey, you made an agreement, keep the freaking agreement. So, yeah, and it's funny, that I like how you say that this is something Aaron's been yearning toward, and I think more specifically, getting into that a little bit, one thing she's always talked about, we saw this way back in, like, P uh, PK Tech Girl and all throughout, is, like, what is the role of peacekeepers in the universe? And we mm -hmm. are a force that actually does good, it prevents wars and all these things, and yes, they have been warped and you know there's all these other terrible things that they do like enslave planets to make weapons and you know oppress people and ha have you know rigel depose and all these other things that are terrible but there's this core of nobility that's in their teachings that is still there and that's the ideals that that you know aaron has kept mm -hmm. even in her exile and i think that's really speaks to something really deep inside of her and who she is and how she sees herself as a soldier. Yeah. I like the way that Yolanda is also playing out what happened to the peacekeepers, that it wasn't just like, oh, their overlords kind of went away, or <laughs> their overlords, but you know, like <laughs> the guys they were working for disappeared. And so they were, you know, they immediately turned evil, but it was rather that they were attempting to continue to keep the peace. Yeah. And then in that process, it, just kind of disintegrated because it's hard to keep the peace when you are a force of war you mm -hmm. know yeah yeah and it's actually quite a compassionate view of the peacekeepers and their history mm -hmm. i don't know uh, i just i really i think this is one of my favorite revelations of the peacekeeper wars i'll be honest 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. And they laid the groundwork for this in what was lost, the two episodes early in season four when they had that little little uh, pyramid typey toy thing. Mm -hmm. And it had like the Egyptian symbols on it that um, that John recognized. Mm -hmm. So so, yeah, um, one thing that we kind of skipped over is what y Yolandal has been trying to do while he's been in this in the prison holding room. He has to, in order for his powers of peace uh, influencing to work, he has to be in proximity to the people he's trying to influence, to kind of absorb their feelings, to understand their drives and motives. And it's very much of a trying to come out with a win-win situation for everybody. And his, his physiology and his abilities allow him to kind of hone in and try to have everybody have an open mind. But it still requires talking. It still requires mm -hmm. knowing them. And because Stark lived among the Scarens for most of his life and he did their death rites. He understands them as a people. He and Yolanda have been talking and trying to, you know, give Yolanda basically a profile to work with of the Scarens in order to start, start influencing them. Mm -hmm. I think this is some of my favorite Stark stuff from this season or from the season mm -hmm. from the miniseries because we often see him kind of as like a little bit nuts like we did when in the first wedding ceremony where he's being creepy yeah. and kind of crazy. But here Yolandao keeps asking him questions of like, well, what would they do if, you know, like between these two choices, which would they choose? And Stark is actually giving it a lot of thought. You know, he's mm -hmm. he really does know the Scarens. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he also he also very much values helping Yolandao. Like he holds him in very high esteem and that comes across very much. Even though he's still skittish, he's still stark. None of that has gone away. You know, he's taking it very seriously and it is a really nice note for him. Mm -hmm. So by the time Stalik and John get back, Yolando <laughs> now has his Garen profile and he immediately gets to work on Stalik and he really presents this interesting vision of Stalik where he says to Stalik, you desire respect, you know, and Stalik, because he's under the influence of Yolandao, immediately admits, he's like, yes, I do. He's like, that's why peace talks will never work because they will never respect me, you know? Yeah. And Yolandao is like, okay, but what if, you know, you proved them wrong in the peace talks? What if you proved how intelligent you were in the peace talks? And that kind of really gets at what Stalik wants. So I kind of wanted to outline Stalik really sees the rest of the universe as disrespecting him as brutish and thuggish and stupid. And what he really wants is respect and for somebody to respect him for his intelligence, mm -hmm. you know, which is a really interesting character note for him. But it makes sense within the context of what we know about Scarens as a species, right? Mm -hmm. They had the flower that they ate to enhance intelligence. The flowers playing into that, you know, they show that there is like a, an, a reason why intelligence is such a touchy subject for the Scarens. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it is not something they have like evolved to have naturally, unless you want to call taking advantage of their environment evolving to adapt to it, which you probably could. But I'm just I guess my point is like. Like it is something that they are hyper aware of because it's it defines their society is their intelligence mm -hmm. levels and they know how the rest of the world's uh, rest of the galaxy sees them because of that. Mm -hmm. 
And definitely, I think Stalik, who is shown to be very intelligent, you know, and especially when he was doing those negotiations with Greza, which he kind of calls out, you know, he calls out that like, hey, they thought we were stupid enough to believe that they had wormhole technology, (laughs) you know, like he calls that out when he's talking to Yolanda. And even when he and (laughs) I want to do a little brief note. While he and John were gone, Akna goes to the nurse that's taking care of Rigel and is like, Stalik wants this guy alive, but I would appreciate it if he was dead. <laughs> and so, and she's like, of completely explainable causes. So Stalik walks in just as the nurse is about to inject Rigel with uh, with some sort of pain relief, which will obviously kill him. And Stalik is like, I need to know whose orders countermand my own. And she's like, Akna. And then so Stalik now knows, you know, he he always knew he had a viper in his bed with Akna, mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's yeah. again kind of getting at that. I think that that's partially why he's so open to Yolandao is because he walks from that into Yolandao being like, "Hey, no, I see you're super intelligent. I respect your power. Like, I am not challenging you in any way." Yeah, and that kind of gets at what we were hinting at when we opened this episode with this power play happening between Akna and Stalik. So Stalik is been influenced enough and Yolanda has been able to get him to open his mind because it's not like a mind trick, right? He's not like forcing Stalik to think things that he wouldn't think otherwise. He's basically putting aside all his knee-jerk reactions and his knee-jerk brain and saying, listen to what I'm saying and have it apply to the reasonable part of your brain and listen and work through it. And that's how they they do peace as far as I understand it. So Stalik agrees and he comes and he he sits down. Before we get to those peace talks, though, there's a couple other items that we skipped over in terms of meanwhile that was happening. One of them was while Stalik and John are in the wormhole with Einstein, Akna, who is now in charge, calls Aaron in to talk with her. and They have some back and forth sparring. But the end result is Akna points out the window and says, I'm going to kill your friends out there. And then she proceeds to blast into empty space where Dargo's ship is because they have detected his ship. And so Aaron has to watch Dargo's ship, Lolak, get destroyed. And so, you know, at that point in time, we're like, Dargo and Chiana are dead. They've just been shot down out of the sky. And it's it's kind of devastating the first time you watch it. And you're like, is it real? Is it not real? And then we find out a little bit later that, that Dargo has survived and Chiana is with him in space. I don't know why Chiana's alive. But um, they're doing they're doing rescue <laughs> breathing. But I'm just like, oh, come on, guys. Her blood would boil. <laughs> Pressure is the problem, not oxygen. Okay. <laughs> my thing is, uh, my husband and I have kind of agreed that apparently in the Farscape universe, everybody can survive in space. And this so true. space doesn't <laughs> exist as it does in our universe. It's an alternate universe where everybody can briefly survive in space. And the issue is not the cold or the blood boiling or the lack of pressure, which keeps your body from exploding. The issue is simply oxygen. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> anyway, it's it's a bit ridiculous. I guess we we skipped a lot with Dargo and Chiana. Um, so going back even further real quick, while they were out in the law before they got shot down, we're just going to do their their timeline backwards and out of order. Chiana used her new like eye powers to to detect where all the vulnerable like engine spots, hot spots were on the on the new Scarin flagship, which mm-hmm. we don't have a name for. It's not a dreadnought, it's not a striker, it's something different. So they now have like the way to get kill the ship. Of course, now they're in space. What's going to happen next? 
I don't know. <laughs> also, another slight brief Chiana Dargo note. He mentions that Rigel has invited them to Hyneria, and he's like, I might go there and maybe, you know, grow some grapes and make wine. <laughs> and Chiana gets this look on her face, and I'm like, Dargo, you tool bag. This was literally her problem with your last time you got together, was that she does not want to go somewhere and grow grapes. <laughs> but at the same time, she's flirting with them, right? She's like, you know, you, you usually slay me with just one shot because it's going to take three to, to, to destroy the command uh, to the, the Scaran ship so there's definitely flirty banterness that's happening between the two of them and we know that they've already started sleeping together again so mm-hmm. there's this, this little bit of hey we might be happy someday and then they get destroyed so it's that clear television thing where as soon as anyone says a good thing is going to happen soon you know it completely gets annihilated but they are rescued by a most <laughs> unusual source because Jothi shows up so let's play that. <laughs> Father. Not quite the luxe and greeting, but what are you doing here? Right now, saving your life. Thanks. Jothi, shouldn't we be running? Our concealment technology is three generations beyond yours. We could pull up beside him and they wouldn't even know we're here. So you're in command now. He's our cleaver. Cleaver? Field officer. Which means he's got brains. The rest of us just like to fight. What are you doing here? Well, we've been following the Emperor for quite some time now. And then... There you were. We gotta take the crown head out. But his ship is pretty well impenetrable. One would think. Is this accurate? It looks like we can take him out in four shots. Three. So the opening bit where Jothi says, Father, and then Dargo socks him across the jaw. Because Dargo has not forgotten the whole Jothi and Chiana cheating on him thing. Of course, he's made up with Chiana, had plenty of time to work it out with her, but he's still mad at Jothi for it. (laughs) Uh, in Dargo's defense, he has had time to forgive Chiana. Like, he sees her every day. He's had oh, yeah. time to forgive her. Jothi, it's, he has <laughs> not had that same time. I love yes. the idea of Jothi being their field ops officer. I love that they respect him. I love that it's called a cleaver. And I a cleaver, also love... I think. Oh, I don't know. In the <laughs> yeah. in the subtitles, it says cleaver, but I'll go with cleaver. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. But that's just because we watch it. Like I said, I said a couple times, we watch everything with subtitles. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we get tired of asking each other, what did he say? What did he say? <laughs> um, but so the other thing that I love is that the Luxons have their own technology that outsmarts Peacekeeper and Scarin technology. Because I think it's really easy to kind of see like Scarins and Peacekeepers as kind of the two big empires and they have the best of everything. But like, of course, like if the Luxons have like this one technology, they're going to develop the heck out of it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And they have this incredible stealth ship. I really like that they take into account like the generational difference between Lola, which was found basically in a scrap heap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was you know, Dargo had so much trouble turning Lola on because he couldn't speak the right, you know, old ancient dialect of Luxon. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool that, that they have taken that technological leap into account. 
Yeah, I really like having Jothi and the Luxons back in too, because it's like we were saying a little while ago, it's the expansion of the universe, right? And this is really the first time we've seen Luxons beyond just them being mentioned, like mm -hmm. they're allied with the Peacekeepers, but this is the first time we actually get to see them and see how they're, what their role is in this war that's spanning the galaxy right now. Yeah, and speaking of the Peacekeepers, I just want to briefly touch back. <laughs> Reza <laughs> and Grand Chancellor Merrick, they are in bed together, and he is asking her for her counsel. Because I think at this point, it's implied that um, he is, that Merrick is very seriously considering peace talks with the Scarens. So he's kind of running through it with Greza, and she's like, yeah, if we know where he is, we can preemptively strike him and take out the head of the, you know, the Scarens. And he's like, yeah, or we could just have peace. <laughs> and and she gives him a chance to agree to, you know, kill Stalik. And instead, he kind of still goes down this path of he wants peace, you know. And uh, so she kills him. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you say that. She just kills him, which is true. I mean, yeah, it's one of those things. It's, it's not just the peace talks, but they are, peacekeepers are in such a bad position. And we even had a little bit of Merrick and one of his officers earlier being like, okay, we got to retreat again from our mm -hmm. outpost. You know, they're in constant retreat. So if they walk into these peace talks, they're walking in at a disadvantage and basically having terms handed to them as opposed to being on equal footing with the Scarens. Mm -hmm. And He's willing to accept that to avoid the annihilation of peacekeepers and peacekeeper territories, whereas she is like, oh, hell no, and poisons him. And so, you know, even if they had some kind of like flirtatious thing and, you know, she calls him my love. So they were sleeping together, but it's not clear like how close they were. She is still very prepared. And as you said earlier and referenced earlier, Lady Macbethian about, OK, you are no longer doing what I want you to do. So you are going to die. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that you were right calling this out last episode, that this really is an extension of her feelings from the end of season four, from We're So Screwed specifically, because I, I feel like she's kind of in this place of like, she has tried for peace with the Scarens, and she was backstabbed by Akna, and Stalik ended up essentially saying, "I our way or the highway. You know, I don't believe you about wormhole weapons. <laughs> yeah. And so she's and so she feels, you know, she's kind of jumped from peace is better than war to, you know, death is better than living under the Scarin boot heel. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it is this progression that she's gone through. So that has all happened elsewhere. And let's go back to Stalik, who is now actually entertaining peace. And I'm going to play this next clip more to just listen to the tone of voice that everyone has as they're all sitting around with Yolanda while he's doing his peace open mindedness thing that Eidolons can do. And it seems to be going pretty well. Yes, that sounds quite reasonable. Absolutely. We're walking into Federationville here. You cross the T's. You dot the lower case J's, and we're good to go. Emperor, could you review the accord that you wish all of us to agree to? Of course. At the core of the matter is the perception that Crichton can create wormhole weapons. If I propose an armistice to the peacekeepers with Crichton by my side, they will naturally assume he has bestowed a military edge upon the Scarran Empire. The Grand Chancellor is no gambler. He would indeed choose peace over a war he knows he would lose. 
Being benevolent, I will then propose an accord which favors us in mining rights and trade balance, whilst allowing complete self-rule of all peacekeeper territories. And I'm out, right? You shall be released upon the signing. And a great many lives will be saved by everybody's sympathy. Do you really wish to broker peace with an enemy you are certain to destroy? What is this? It is the proper course of action. If your kind has a prayer for the dying, fill your mind with it now that you may be comforted. So, at the beginning, you have everyone and even Scorpius being like, oh, that's so reasonable. And everyone kind of just happy-go-lucky. <laughs> and Aaron is smiling and Stark is serving drinks or picking up cups. And, and John is actually leaning against the leak with his, you know, his arm on his knee, sitting at his feet. And it's all just very happy and calm and smooth and, and a little bit Stepford Wives, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Akna comes in and shoots poor Yolando in the face and it all goes to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's interesting here is like like we said earlier, what Yolanda is is doing isn't actually like he's not influencing Stalik's mind. He's just allowing Stalik to see the value of others' perspectives, number one. And also because one of the things that happens in in human brains, at least, and I assume also in in Scarin brains, is that you real your brain only ever really accepts information that already fits with the paradigms that exist in your brain. So that's why it's really hard to have political or ethical discussions with people because if the new information you're providing doesn't fit with what they already believe, it's very very hard for people to integrate that information into in, into their brains, into what they think. Mm-hmm. So here Stalik is, and he's listening, like really listening, and also really admitting what he wants on a fundamental level, which is he doesn't want to rule peacekeeper <laughs> space. Like that seems like a lot of work. He just wants to be respected, and he wants the mining rights and the resource rights because he already has a ginormous empire that he has to feed and clothe and house. Mm-hmm. So like he doesn't need all the extra work (laughs) right and then you hear that difference once Yolando is shot you know he's like something went on here something terrible and then he's like okay you guys are all dead now you know there's this really stark line between how he was listening and how he was and how he normally is of not listening Mm -hmm. your point about Scorpius is also really key because if there is one character who is never going to believe the best of P- of Scarens, it's Scorpius. And yet here Scorpius is being like, oh yeah, we could have peace without wormhole weapons. <laughs> we could have real peace. And and also the um just I, I don't know, the Scorpius thing really gets me because he's also the one admitting, like, hey, Grand Chancellor Merrick is a smart man. He's gonna want peace over war. 
Mm-hmm. And we've seen that in the conversations that the Grand Chancellor has had with Greza. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for everybody, he's now dead. So we know that's not going to go very well, fa- go anywhere very quickly. So yes, yeah, so we have now everybody's in danger again because Akna, who has also, again, upset the balance of power here. Mm-hmm. Salik's still alive, but she is the one in a way kind of calling the direction of things are going to go because she is the one who's like, no, we're not doing peace talks. And mm-hmm. Stalik's uh, agency over that is now coming to an end, and he has reverted back to having to be someone respected amongst the Scarens so that he can maintain control and control over Akna. Mm-hmm. And so where does that leave us? Uh, we have Stark freaking out about uh, Yolando being shot. You have Aaron and John saying, Stark, you need to cross him over so you can take his information and how he does this and so you can teach it because we know Stark can carry information with his Stykira abilities mm-hmm. um, of, with, that he gets from the dead to teach the Eidolons on the water planet. He doesn't want to because he's, one, shocked by the death and he doesn't feel himself worthy, but Aaron and John force him and, you know, he doesn't react very well to that but they do force him and then you have rigel who is now back amongst them all basically being like i'm gonna explode with this baby you better transfer me and they have like the baby transfer kit i don't know why the scarens let them keep the baby transfer kit with them but they did they also (laughs) let scorpius keep his cooling rods because after after stalik came and ripped out the cooling rods Sokozu took new ones and essentially just shoved them in the hole yeah. where the cooling rod thing used to be and then like stapled it shut, which I'm like, <laughs> gross. I feel like in that one, uh, Sokozu just kind of had them in her pocket and they didn't trip any alarm, so they let her keep them. Oh, but I could have sworn the- she had the case. I don't know. Maybe oh, I was missing that. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. You're actually probably right about that. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know why the scarabs let them keep shit, but... They did, and so, and so, and now on top of it all, there's this gas coming in for the walls, and I think Scorpius calls it an entombing gas, where they will be basically kill, you know, make them so that their brains can be dissected afterwards, because of course they still probably while want, alive, while alive, just to rub it in, like probably like those those was it the virus mosquito or the virus that takes over bugs? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's where we end this part one of or part one of the Peacekeeper Wars in the present time with the crew basically being like gassed mm-hmm. in a chamber. And then the last scene that we are going to kind of discuss before we end is there is another one of those future scenes of John in a coma on Moya and Moya all kind of destroyed and Aaron doing a voiceover and her voiceover is basically like you wanted this you wanted to use the wormhole weapons and John being like no I didn't have any choice and so it gets even closer to like what is the disaster that happens at the end Mm -hmm. yeah and that's where we end the second part of our viewing which again this is actually just the end of the first part of the miniseries right so we are an hour and a half into it just kind of to give you a timestamp on it if you're watching on DVD. Which apparently and- <laughs> goes in three-hour increments, which I did not know. <laughs> well, one three-hour long episode with no breaks. So that's why we're kind of, you know, finagling our 45-minute chunks. <laughs> so, yeah. So tell us what you thought. Um, we're going to, again, hold off our rating of the episode and of the whole miniseries until the end. But let us know your thoughts because we'll be happy to talk them over with you. You can always reach us at Farscape Friday podcast at dreamwithtumblr and at gmail.com. You can reach us at Farscape Friday on Twitter. And we will see you next week. Bye.